Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Today's interview is a combo interview that we did for both Moving to Live and FitLab Pittsburgh. Both these podcasts are based in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. They both treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. If you like what you're hearing and you're listening to us on Moving to Live or you're listening to us on FitLab Pittsburgh, make sure you check out the other podcast. Leave us some positive feedback on whatever podcast app you're using and drop us a message through social media or our emails to let us know what you like and offer suggestions for future interviews. Today, we're interviewing Mike Schultz of Highland Training. Mike is an endurance coach, an endurance cyclist, and he has a great story as well as advice on what it takes to be successful long-term in the endurance coaching field. FitLab PGH back with another podcast episode. You'll probably also hear this podcast on Moving to Live. They are sister podcasts. We firmly believe that you should treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. We try to interview a wide variety of people who move, people who are involved in training people to move more or move better. Today's guest came as a recommendation from Elaine Tierney. Elaine suggested her fiance, who we're still trying to connect with, and she also suggested Mike Schultz of Highland Training. Mike has an interesting and eclectic story. I think he's been involved in doing endurance things almost as long as I have. Uh, Mike, I'll tell you in advance, my first heart rate monitor was in 1990, but not that far difference. We're here at Coffee Buddha, enjoying the rainy weather. So Mike, thanks for taking time to talk to the podcast. Oh, uh, you're, you're definitely welcome. And uh, I love doing podcasts because I get to share um, the story and everything I've learned over the past 20 years um, when it comes to cycling and strength and conditioning. And so um, where should we take it from here? Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh, the difficulty of actually making your living as an endurance coach. And I know there's a lot of people with personal training with coaching, et cetera, it's, it's very easy to throw out the, co- the term coach and say, oh, I'm a coach or I do this or I do that. But the people who are actually saying, I need to bring the money in, I need to be qualified are few and far between. 
So when you see somebody, you're at a, a bar, you're at a coffee shop or something, and they say, what do you do? What's kind of your 30-second elevator spiel? I'm Mike Schultz, and I do. I coach endurance athletes. I, I mainly coach cyclists, and the, the majority of them are mountain bikers. Um, you know, the, we spoke about this uh, earlier, but the trend is uh, a lot of people are starting to move uh, onto dirt and uh, love racing their bikes. Um, you know, I'm a certified uh, specialist in the strength and conditioning field uh, with the uh, NSCA and uh, have uh, a few other certifications and uh, been coaching for 11 years uh, full-time. I've uh, been uh, coaching and racing basically and learning the sport and the science for over 20 years now. So, um, you know, that's what I do. I do full-time and uh, work hard for every single person that uh, comes through my door. I'm always curious, and I know there's a fair number of people who will be listening to this to, who will say this. It's like, why endurance sports? And I know from reading your bio and looking at your webpage for Highland Training, before you coached, you actually were a participant in these things. So it's not somebody who's just standing there with a whistle saying, you do it because this is what the book says. You've actually experienced it. How did you get into doing endurance and ultra endurance events? Do, did you do that in high school? Were you a runner in high school? No, I played hockey. Uh, I was actually a goalie in high school and uh, I loved playing hockey. Um, but, you know, post high school hockey leagues went on for so many years. And uh, then I'm into my early 20s. I started discovering bikes actually i think i started discovering bikes when i was like 18 19 um riding them around the neighborhoods and uh you know just loved riding and started uh, seeing these guys going fast in spandex <laughs> and uh hey man these guys look fast and i was kind of interested in that um you know i didn't really get heavily into racing until i was about 25 or 26 it's kind of uh when a life change happened and uh quit the corporate job and uh moved to the mountain, rode my bike every day and worked part-time. Um, and from there uh, is where I really fell in love with going long and seeing the views, the scenery. And, you know, on early morning, misty mornings and you're climbing mountains and there's no one around, it's just, I don't know, it's addicting. And so that's how I got, got into it. Question I always have to ask because I have to get it out of the way whenever I interview or talk to somebody who's a cyclist. You've probably heard the equation, the perfect number of bikes is N plus one, where N is the current number you have. So how many bikes do you currently have? Well, I have a few bikes and uh, I have a few bikes that are not even operational right now. Um, I am not the tech guy. I just like to feel fast and fit on the bike. I always have. Um, I may always will. Um, I get a bike and I ride it until it doesn't work and then I get another bike. And so I have just the basic necessities. I have a, uh, a really great mountain bike, specialized, um, you know, stump jumper. And uh, I have a, a, a doable road bike, uh, which is a, an Elise. Actually, the Elise, uh, I think, won the world championship uh, this past year. So uh, I'm on an aluminum bike, but I'm kind of still proud of it. Um, so, yeah, I just keep those two bikes, and uh, that gets me through the year. Uh, wintertime indoors, outdoors, uh, I ride as much as I can. Um, and, uh, yeah, keep it pretty simple. Uh, so. And you mentioned how you got into cycling by, by seeing people wearing spandex. And often when you see people <coughs> spinning by on the road, you bite the, uh, the road cycling thing and you get into criteriums and maybe if you have the opportunity, some stage races. But you didn't go in that direction. You went in the direction of off-road. Why did you do that or what attracted you to the off-road when you first saw the people on-road? Well, I when I moved to the Somerset Seven Springs area, there was tons of trails and for whatever reason 
um, all of my friends at the time rode mountain bikes. And actually, I think I remember my first mountain bike ride. It was a night ride and it was late at night after kind of a, a night of uh, celebrating. And uh, it was a short ride and it scared the bejesus out of me, but it, it, it hooked me on night riding. And that's how, you know, just mountain biking in general, I, I think seeing my friends do it and no one was really into a ton of road riding back then. That was like in the mid nineties. Um, there were road rides that were happening, races were happening, but there were way more mountain bike races happening. Uh, and then you started learning about West Virginia and the West Virginia mountain bike series. Um, and I started participating in those races back in the early two thousands. And then it's like, okay, there's this whole world here of mountain bike races and trails, and this is fun. So that's where the addiction to mountain biking came in. And I know I've talked to a few people who exercise outdoors and end up in the mountains or on the trails. And there really is something about not having to worry about cars and people buzzing you. 100%. As you mentioned, the the misty mornings, sometimes you're focusing on the training. Sometimes you're just focusing and going, wow, look what I just saw. Right. Exactly. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, I'm a nature boy. So yeah, anytime I'm in the woods and, uh, through the trees and you're pedaling that ribbon of single track, um, and you're flowing with it. And with today's bikes, <laughs> it's way more fun because as you remember, um, 20 years ago, bikes were way different, you know, V brakes and, uh, there were no, none of this, uh, you know, disc brakes and hydraulic stuff going on. So, um, yeah, whole new world. And I used to say, I don't need disc brakes. I don't need hydraulic brakes. I don't need uh, front suspension. I still have a hard tail, but hydraulic brakes and front suspension are now a requirement for me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't need, I'm a hard tail. I've never ridden uh, a full suspension. And uh, yeah, I just like the simplicity of, um, and maintenance wise, that's why I only have a few bikes because I don't have the time to spend a lot of time in maintenance, which all my friends know. <laughs> So along with me, you can add to, I told Elaine during our interview with her that I blamed her for spending a lot of money in, on bikes because she and her ex-husband started Dirt Rag. I'm curious though, you dropped down the rabbit hole of doing mountain bike races, doing 24-hour races, just being in the mountains. What was it that made you kind of turn the corner and say, okay, I'm going to start coaching too, because that's a big step upwards or a big change from just saying, I'm going to get on my bike and ride a lot. Well, it all started when I put a heart rate monitor on in the early 2000s and I became fascinated with heart rates. And then over the next six, seven years, I started learning that there were a lot of people out there that just didn't know um, how to interpret heart rates, how to use them, and they weren't using the right information. So that drove me into wanting to learn more on the strength side of things. And I think it was like 2006, uh, I got certified as a personal trainer uh, through the NSCA. And at the same time, um, I met a friend and he was like, you need to get your CSCS because that is going to teach you a lot of science. And so then the next few years, I, I, uh, I pursued that. And it wasn't until after that, I then said, okay, now what am I going to do with this? Because, <laughs> you know, I get a CSCS, I can, I can maybe go into football or I can maybe go into hockey. I love hockey. And, but I was like, I'm so into cycling, I should stick with cycling. And then when I started seeing the cycling community, I was like, wow, I'm a strength and conditioning coach and I can be a cycling coach. And then that's when all of the heart rate and the power info and as we talked earlier, iPhones and technology and then it just blew up. And then all of a sudden now I have all this data to study and it became fascinating. And that's pretty much my quick story. I'm curious if you can think back then when you were saying, I want to get more knowledge 
why did you decide on the NSCA CPT as your CPT? Because I know there's there's probably a hundred certifications out there. There are some that are a little more difficult, uh, NSCA, ACSM, mm-hmm. NASM, and ACE probably. Those are probably the four big ones. Mm-hmm. But what was it that you said, you know, I want to, I want to do this particular one? You know, that's a good question. Um, uh, the NSCA, and I did my research because I was going back and forth between the NSCA and the ACSM. Um, and then, you know, just through self-study and research, I learned that the ACSM was more of a clinical side of things and the NSCA was more sports oriented. And so I knew I wanted to go sports oriented. And so that's where I started. Um, but, uh, so yeah, that's basically how, and plus with the, um, the journals and the strength conditioning journals and all the research that goes along with the NSCA that really attracted me, uh, to the NSCA. I think that there's a lot of people who forget that one of the benefits of some of these organizations, ACSM, NSCA is as a member, you get these journals where even if you aren't a researcher, you can just kind of drop down the rabbit hole and rather than have somebody tell you. This is what the research says. You can read the research and say, oh, well, they talk about well-trained cyclists, but these cyclists only average 50 miles a week. That's not really a well-trained cyclist. And I love that you just said that because out of all of the research articles that I've done, and I've written a lot, I, I write a lot for Training Peaks, and I try, if many of the science articles that I write, I try to dive into the research. And when diving into the research, you need to... Um, be able to say, all right, this is good research. Well, it's all good research, but this is quality or these, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for because they're using, um, 20 Tour de France riders and they're also using 20 mom and pop riders and they're taking the results between both or they're using a study of 500 people or a thousand people. And that's a lot of data. Sure. If you see some of the studies I've read, you know, like you said, uh, they're using 10 well-trained cyclists and they don't explain how well-trained or how long they've been riding. So many variables in this stuff that, you know, you kind of look at studies like that and say, all right, let's go to the next study and let's see what the next study says. You know, so. And I know a a colleague of mine, Dr. Jay Dawes and I are going to start doing some, uh, for moving to live some audio abstracts of research talking about what's well-designed in the study, what isn't, because not necessarily saying if something uh, is published, it probably has some piece of information you can take away from it. But I think you hit a great point. If they use 10 well-trained cyclists, whatever the definition of well-trained is, you might look at that a little bit differently as opposed to if they say we had 250 well-trained cyclists who averaged 150 miles a week for the eight months prior to the data collection. So 100%. It, it's yeah. always be, be critical. Um, don't read it passively. And I'm sure you'll agree with me from the educational opportunity is there's reading for pleasure, like picking up the local newspaper, or I guess now in Pittsburgh, reading online lo- local newspaper. Yeah. And then there's the reading critically, the professional, which sometimes makes your head hurt. And you, you read two pages and you come back and you read those same two pages again. And maybe the third or fourth time it's like, Oh, I see what's going on here. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that in this field, you need to accept criticism and you need to uh, provide it because it's the only way in science you'll press on is if anyone, everyone's being critical of your work. Um, and, and, and you as well. And that's how you'll learn is to question things. And even with my clients, I always welcome that, like always question what we're doing because then I get to explain it. If you have an ego, you're going to be limited in how well you do. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so. so we're talking with Mike Schultz, Highland Training. 
you basically geek out on heart rate. You realize that you like racing. You like being in the mountains. You pursue certifications so that you can, first of all, gain a little more knowledge for yourself and then say, wait a second, I think I can help other people. Mm -hmm. So I know that some people, they think it's really easy. You just start working at a health club or a facility. You get a weekend certification and bingo, you're a personal trainer or you're a, you're a coach. You're making your living at this. You've been doing it full time for 11 years. If you can think back to then, how do you find your first athlete? I mean, you, you've got, and admittedly in the endurance world, there's not a whole lot of endurance coaches who work with age group athletes. There are some, there's very few who are making their living full time. Mm -hmm. So you're starting out, you've got the CSCS, you've got the CPT and you're going, you know, I'm going to start getting some clients and maybe making a little money to help pay some race entry fees. How do you go about getting them? That's a great question. And, um, I remember back then saying, all right, I'm living in the lower Highlands. I'm going to start this business called Highland training. I like it. I got the website a whole bit. I need clients. And I think the first few clients always come from your friends because they're right there and they need help and they're curious about what you're going to do. And I always say, take them on, charge them or not. And then you can learn little tidbits. But the real breakthrough for me happened. I started, I, there were forums on training peaks. And I was like, oh, look at all these coaches answering all these questions and anyone can answer these questions. So I'm like, I'm going to dive in and answer questions. Next thing you know, I was answering like 10, 20 questions a day. I'd answer them every single day, every time there's a question. And I always try to be as professional as I could be and answer it to the best of my knowledge with the science backing it up. And people started liking my answers. Well, there was this coach out of Utah that saw me on this forum. And for some reason, she wrote an article, Linda Wallenfalls, great coach. And I emailed her and said, Linda, I really appreciate, you know, your, I, I like what you wrote, wrote. And she wrote back and said, um, you know, Mike, do you want to take some referrals? And I was like, yes. And from there, she mentored me on starting a business. And we've had a partnership for 11 years. Um, I've been out there. She uh, helped me on one of my first bike packs uh, in, in uh, Arizona. Um, great people, really well-knowledged and well-connected. Um, through a few of her referrals over the year and then starting to write and getting your name out there and things started to build. Um, so I would say that you need to just put your nose to the ground and do whatever it takes to get noticed. That's the key. I know one of the first people I interviewed for moving to live is a friend of mine, Rick Howard, who does a lot of stuff with long-term athletic development for children. And he had a comment in the middle of the interview. I don't know if he was aware that he was making it, but this is something that I've seen with a lot of people that I've interviewed, the willingness to share knowledge and to put yourself out there. It's very easy as a coach or as a trainer, or as a professional say, I don't have time or somebody's going to steal my knowledge. Why do you not have that attitude of, well, I can't help people. I can't make these comments because then somebody's just going to take this information and steal it from me. It, because it's a black hole of information, literally. <laughs> and I, I never knew there would be this much information 10 years later, but I'm still learning and we're still learning tidbits of information. And, you know, when it comes to the program, so I write programs a week at a time for everyone. They're really dialed. I'm in touch with everyone every week. I know their life. I know where they're going. We can dial things around. And that's really the true way that, that it really does work. Um, so yeah, sure. Someone can steal my program or take my workouts, but then how they piece together. Well, that's the complicated part because there's so many variables. 
and you've been doing this for part-time or full-time for almost 20 years. I'm curious, do you find your jobs easier now with all the technology and the ease of connecting with the internet, or do you find it's harder because there's so much information? It is harder. Um, there is a lot of information and clients. Um, and now I work with um, the majority of my clients are age groupers, and, but I'll work with a handful of super elites. And um, everyone across the board will see a tidbit of information and then send it to you and say, what do you think about this? Or am I doing this wrong? Or am I doing that wrong? And it's your job to either support that or say, you know, this is my view on it. Um, that's the that would that is hard uh, these days because there's so much information that as a, a new coach you'll be challenged. Yeah. I'm interested with the comment you just made. You said age groupers and elite or super elite, and one of the things, as you know, in the endurance world, there it's very easy to be quote unquote sponsored in that somebody gives right. you some energy drink or they give you a T-shirt or a pair of bike shorts or a pair of shoes. When you talk about elite for people who are listening who maybe are not in the endurance world. What do you mean by an age grouper versus an elite? Well, okay, so age grouper is uh, is me. <laughs> uh, that's where I'm at right now, and I compete within others that are in uh, close to my age and that are dads and uh, have jobs. Um, that's the difference between age group. Uh, age grouper doesn't have the time that a, that a young elite uh, athlete who doesn't have the responsibilities and can spend more time on his bike or her bike. Um, you know, whereas the elites who work with the elite, uh, Nick Beecham out of California. Um, he's, uh, he just scored, I think 50 place in a UCI race, uh, West Virginia. Uh, he was six minutes back of Nina Schroeder, who's the best guy in the world. Um, that's elite, you know, these guys, they don't really make a living off of it, but they're sponsored with bikes and, uh, some travel and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, guys like that, he's close to maybe making the U S Olympic team. So like that's elite, um, regardless between whether you're elite or you're an age grouper, everyone works really hard at it, um, it, to be good. Uh, you know, if you just want to fly by, then yeah, you don't have to work so hard. So I know I knew a, a, a triathlon coach when I lived in Atlanta, um, Jay Marshall and Jay's comment about some of these elite people, and he did not mean this in a negative way, but they are genetic freaks. They just physically and physiologically are able to adapt to the training. And I still remember an athlete that he was dealing with went from a category f or working with went from category five in like two months to a category one cyclist right and if you have it comes down to strength to weight and uh as you know um and genetics and we talked earlier about um fast responders and slow responders and training and identifying that um yeah and some people just have to work really hard to be good I, I think i was one of them and i think that's what led me to being in my position now is i had to work so hard um i had to learn so much to be decent uh and uh but yeah i, I see people come through quite often and in three to six months uh they do well um yeah i've seen a lot across the board uh, about 500 people i think <laughs> since uh 2010 something like that and i think one of the things about endurance sports and being active is you can cycle in and out of being competitive in an age group so you may mm -hmm. like your kids are in school um, maybe you've got a little bit of flexibility in your job for the next couple of years. You can say, okay, I'd like to do a little more to see whatever your goal is. Maybe your goal is to see if you can win your age group at a, a race in seven Springs, or maybe your goals are to compete a bike packing trip or to do the Leadville 100 mountain bike race right. for you as a coach. And I think I've talked about this with Menachem Brody, who's another cycling coach. 
it's a relationship. It's not just somebody says, Hey Mike, here's some money. Give me a training program. And you send them an Excel spreadsheet that has no personality, no communication as a coach. I think what's interesting, because we talked a little bit, there's the art, there's the communication. How do you, uh, handle it both when you decide that this relationship is not working with a client and, or when a client comes to you and says, Hey Mike, for whatever reason, either you're not giving me the results I want, or my life is getting really crazy. It's not really a firing you, but it's like, I'm not going to use you as a coach. How do you, how do you approach that? And did, was this a learning process? It is because early on when you're working with few people and then people would drop for whatever life reason, it would be really hard. Um, and, uh, because then that's your income. And, um, even now it's still hard because you invest all of your time into people and you're investing your, you know, everything you have, um, emotionally even. And so when you, you, you bring someone on to your roster, sure. You're thinking about them all the time. It's part of it. Um, so when they drop, a go to new, new coach, it always stings, but at the same time, I'm like, cool. Then you get to experience that other person and then you can compare that to what we did and that will help you learn. And if I did a really good job, then that will come out in the end. And that's how I look at it. I've never really fired a client. I've, I've worked with some really tough cookies. Um, you know, type a individuals, uh, that want every answer all the time and I respond to it and I just work really hard. And usually if they don't get what they want, they, you know, you never, I was taught early on that you're never going to please a hundred percent of people out there. Like it's impossible. <laughs> and I know we were talking before we were recording, you were telling me about a client who had left you to went with somebody else mm-hmm. and went to another person. And now after two or three coaches, they're back with you. So Correct. it always makes sense not to burn a bridge. Absolutely. I invite everyone back um, at any time. Actually, I, uh, a lady uh, from Arizona just came back to me from six years ago. She wants to get back into it and is in a different life position. And she's really fast and competitive. And, um, you know, I then treat her like a brand new client at this time. And we roll from here. I know, especially in the endurance world, it's very easy to look at the number of people who are competing in marathons or competing in gravel grinders or things like that. And let's and say, boy, this is a, a really good thing I can get into. If I can get X number of athletes, you know, and I can charge them Y dollars, boy, I can make a lot of money at it. How do you decide what's the right number? And I know there's a range of enough athletes, both to pay your bills, but also to give you the opportunity to give them that individual attention rather than sending them that Excel spreadsheet that you send to six other people, which again, as we've talked, it's not what you're doing. No. And I've brought on people who have worked with uh, coaches who, um, you know, have 80, a hundred athletes. And what happens is that a lot of people get the same program because it's impossible to work with that many people and dial in a program. Like for me, I work one week at a time with everyone and I'm in touch a week at a time with everyone and whatever they have, you know, we work via training peaks. I think training peaks is one of the best platforms in the world uh, at the, what they do um, as far as like providing schedules uh, and so forth. Um, but yeah, I try to dial it in weekly because in that way training is realistic. And so even going back a lot of times coaches would post four weeks at a time or what I, ha- what I noticed is that life is way too complicated for four weeks to go perfectly. Um, and, and so, um, you know, there's kids, there's pets, there's animals, there's jobs, there's stress, there's all this stuff. And it always goes wrong. And so you have to just continually adjust. On top of that, fatigue happens. And then you, you got to recognize that. So, um, so yeah, I, I, one of my goals was to always provide a really precise program for everyone. And if somebody's a young coach listening to this or somebody who's looking for a coach, 
how did you for yourself determine what's the sweet spot for number of athletes too few too many too many i think getting close to 30 people is a lot um because you know then you start to lose uh touch with some people and uh you know when you get down to 20 you kind of find some extra time in the day so i think anywhere between 20 and 30 is a great uh sweet spot 25 clients but a great sweet spot for a coach uh, and i know part of the purpose of the podcast is to educate and I know people who are listening to this, as you mentioned, uh, off-road gravel rides are becoming popular. Trail runs are becoming very popular. So people may not be familiar with those. They may be looking for coaches. Just to give people what you do, if somebody approaches you, say you're, you're down in the low 20s, and you're going, yeah, I could probably pick up a couple of athletes. Somebody mm-hmm. contacts you or somebody recommends you. What's the commitment from an athlete? Do they have to sign up for a specific period of time or how does that work? I never do contracts. And uh, from my mentor, uh, she taught me this is that uh, she taught me a few things. Um, A, you have to charge for what you do because if you do, you'll work really hard for it. Um, So um, charge what's fair uh, and fair in the market. Um, And B, um, she doesn't do any contracts because that means that um, her clients pay her bills every single month, one month at a time. And if she loses those people, then she better do a better job. And so she goes, I don't do contracts because then I work harder for people. And she was right about both of those things. Um, and uh, yeah, so one month at a time. Um, and I've been working with people for 11 years straight. <laughs> I have a lot of clients that have been with me for six or seven years and eventually they, amazing, and they're still making gains. Um, but yeah, eventually they drop. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, you work hard for people, you'll get the result on the business side that you want. And for people who are listening to this, you know, maybe they don't have a racing goal. Is there a use for somebody who just enjoys being out in the mountains, whether it's trail running, mountain biking, riding the gravel bike to have a coach? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of people I work with that just like to ride and they may do one race or event a year. Um, they just like to feel fast and they like numbers. So, um, you know, if you like numbers, you like to feel fast, well then I'll fill your brain every single week with numbers on power and heart rates and all that kind of stuff like that. And they enjoy it. And what I find is that it's motivating for them because they have this person on the other side, kind of like seeing, watching, expecting what they're going to do. And when you take that away, then you're on your own. You can do whatever you want, <laughs> right? So that's the difference. They often say a fool has themselves for a coach. <laughs> Some people can self-coach really well. Um, it is across the board hard. And for me, you know, obviously I have to kind of self-coach in a way, um, not as competitive as I was, but Strava is where it changes for me. All my clients are on Strava. So if I'm not riding, you know, I feel guilty. So it's a, it's a two-way street. <laughs> I'm curious also, very common that husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend get into this. They say, you know, we want to train for filling your favorite gravel grinder or 100-mile race or metric century race. And they come to you and say, hey, we want to hire you as a coach. How do you balance that where they say they want to ride together and they may be a vastly different either skills or physiological fitness. So they actually would not have the same program, but they're approaching you because they want to do it together. It's almost impossible to work with two people like that. Um, I would just say that. Would you repeat that please? (laughs) It's almost impossible. I'll say almost because there, there are some rare uh, situations. Um, and I have worked with couples before. Um, but you do run into into problems with it as far as like, well, Hey, we have the same program or we don't, or how are we going to construct these rides? I find it's best to work with one or the other. 
Um, and then if the other one seeks coaching, have them work with another coach and then they can deal with it on their end. You know, that's a better way to do it. So we're talking with Mike Schultz of Highland Training. I'm curious, you've been in the coaching business, double digits of years. You're here in Pittsburgh as we were talking. I don't think we're being insulting by saying Pittsburgh is not a hotbed for endurance activities. <laughs> Why the decision to stay in the Pittsburgh area as opposed to saying, boy, I'm going to go out to where my mentor is in Utah or I'm going to go to Colorado or Wyoming or someplace where you're not the weird guy riding down the road in the middle of winter in uh, tights and a beanie, but you're kind of the norm. <laughs> it's a good question. And uh, I questioned that a long time ago. Um, and then, you know, I met my wife and she works in the city and that, that's what decided it. But um, I love this city. I love the topography. Um, it's just always been home for me. So I didn't really want to move anywhere. And I enjoy traveling out west. I enjoy going to Colorado. I enjoy visiting places, but I really enjoy coming home. And so I knew, you know, when you have that feeling, it's like I knew that if I was good at endurance, I could do it anywhere. It didn't matter where I was. And so, you know, that's why I stayed here. And I know that there, one of the opportunities or benefits of Pittsburgh is cost of living is significantly cheaper. So you can afford to go to those destinations to do those things. I'm curious how you approach an athlete who comes to you who maybe has a goal, but they don't have the time to achieve that goal. You mentioned that a number of the people you work with are high-powered attorneys and physicians, and we all know, especially with physicians and attorneys, uh, number of patients, billable hours. You know, They may have a goal and say, man, you know, I want to do this uh, 24-hour race or I want to do this 100-mile race, and I have this goal in mind, and you know just from your knowledge that they don't have a time in the day, week, month to train for it? How do you give them realistic expectations where maybe they can train for it and complete it, but not compete in it? Yeah, that's that's important to set up realistic expectations with people. And you know, what's funny is I just brought on a lady, um, I think I just mentioned, uh, and she fits that exact bill. She's really busy. She's a teacher. She teaches outside of teaching, um, but she likes to ride her bike and wants to race at 24-hour single speed in February. Okay, And so um, she needs an hour a day, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, but on the weekend she can ride. So for her, um, expectations are sort of realistic because she can get out for long rides on the weekends. Um, and, um, and that makes it the bill. We spoke about it earlier. There, there is a sweet spot for prescribing, um, certain intensity, um, and certain volume. And you don't necessarily need big volume all the time to do well at big races. You just need, um, you know, spots of volume here and there to prep you for that long distance. Um, so for most people, their goals are actually achievable. Um, for very few people, they might be setting themselves up for something unrealistic. Uh, I'd say that. We're here in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. I'm curious how, what it's like, uh, not so much with the elite athletes who can go to training camps, but more with the age groupers who have these goals of doing some of these events out West where they're at altitude. Um, I know I mentioned a couple of times Leadville. Um, I interviewed Sam Wood, who's a runner who's done that. You know, you start at 10,000 feet, you go up to 14,000 plus, And I know, you know, significantly different than climbing and doing things around Pittsburgh. How do you approach that with them so that they have a good experience? Maybe they don't go as fast as they would at sea level, but they still finish and say, boy, that was a fun experience. Well, I have a lot of people doing that now because uh, Leadville is really big. Uh, the Breck Epic is really big. And, um, you know, across the board, it's all about how physiologically you handle altitude. It's also about how many times you've raced at altitude i'm finding um i've raced altitude quite a bit and so now when i go back to altitude i, I acclimate pretty fast where i didn't 
um, you know, 10 years ago. And I have some really fast guys locally here that went out to Breck Epic and then they struggled. Um, uh, one of those reasons is because it was 40 degrees and rain on the first day, but <laughs> <laughs> which kind of destroyed everyone, I think. Um, but the altitude part that actually added to it because, uh, this guy came out kind of sick and then the altitude part uh, made it even worse. But I will say this, that if you're going to go do a race at altitude and it's going to be 10,000 feet, you should want to be there at least a week early because I wouldn't go the day before. Um, because that's like a crapshoot. <laughs> so have you found that you've had some clients over the years that they just, they're with those people who just do not know, do well at altitude, no matter what? Yeah. I mean, there's not that many races at altitude to really study that I would say. And a lot of my clients are smart enough not to pick races at that high altitude. Um, you know, the, the only ones out there, you know, you have Leadville, you have Breckenridge, um, outside of those races, everything is, when you're in the 6,000, 7,000 foot range, it's not as dramatic as it is at nine or 10. Um, so, yeah. You've mentioned, Mike, that a number of your clients are uh, fairly high powered individuals. And I know one of the things people often talk about when they meet attorneys or they meet doctors or they see their attorney or see their doctors, they're very driven, they're very focused. Some people would term arrogant. Do you find it uh, interesting to deal with these individuals? Do they try to tell you what to do or do you find that they're approaching you because it's kind of, I recognize this is outside of my wheelhouse and Mike's the expert here. hundred percent. And you know, I, again, I've tried to work really hard to learn as much as I could over the past 10 years so I could be that expert. I'm still learning. Um, and, uh, but when anyone comes to me, um, I would say that in, we go back to people starting in this field, you got to be confident about what you're doing. And the more knowledge you have with the science and the studies and the experience, more confident you'll be. Um, so no, everyone just leaves it up to me. Uh, and I work with a lot of people who are really busy and successful and they say all the time, like, just put it in a training beaks and I'll do it. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. They have to gain power and speed. Um, that's the other part of it. If they're not doing, it's not gaining, making gains, uh, they won't last, but, but yes, um, you, in this field, you, you gotta just be firm at what you know and, and put it out there. Yeah. And I know, I think you've really hit on a couple of times, the importance of continuing to learn. I know I had somebody before I went and got my doctor to say, why do you want to get your doctor? You should already have enough education. And once I got my doctor, I realized I don't know anything. And that's why I have literally across the world, a variety of friends and colleagues that if it's something that's outside of my wheelhouse, I could email them mm -hmm. or Skype them and say, Hey, give me the down and dirty in this. So I at least can sound reasonably competent. Oh yeah. Um, and there's, you know, you, you exactly that's that two things there. I mean, referring people to other professionals is key. Um, you know, I never try to be a doctor. I don't want to be a nutritionist. I I'm good at one thing, getting people strong. And so I focus on that. Now nutrition does come into it a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when someone has an ache or pain, then they need to see a fit specialist. or they need to see an athletic trainer or they need to see a PT or a doctor. Uh, and that's really important. The second part of that is always learning. Um, you know, there's so many tidbits of information. And when you start working with some of the elites and you start getting all these, like, you know, even if you hear something, go research it and then see how much value that is. And then that's how you keep learning all these little bits of information. Uh, but I can share. We're talking with Mike Schultz of Highland Training. I'm curious, started out as a biker, did quite a few 24-hour races and other ultra-endurance type things, got into coaching, but still do the riding yourself. You said Strava kind of holds your feet to the fire, but a lot of people, they hit a certain age um, 
and they kind of say, yeah, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. What keeps you doing some sort of movement in addition to the coaching? It's a good question. Uh, fitness. Yeah. When I started though, so way back in the late 2000s, I got away from cycling for a few years and gained some weight. And I think I was about 225 at one point. And I remember a buddy looking at me and he said that I had cankles in my fat <laughs> ankles and I'll never forget it. He's a buddy out in Colorado. If he listens to this, he'll laugh. Um, anyways, at that point I was like, I, I got to make a change. I just, something snapped. And ever since then, and what's funny is that I have a picture side by side in my office, um, of me, uh, that guy that was overweight on the bike. And then six years later, years later, me racing a 24 hour race, um, coming in second to a well-known guy named Tinker. Um, and, uh, I chased him down and the, when you look at both those pictures, you can see the dramatic change went from 225 to 160 in racing fast. And that keeps me going. Um, yeah. That. I think that's a good place to cut it. Uh, we're talking with Mike Schultz of Highland Training. I think he's given uh, some great information on what it's like to actually make your living as a coach slash trainer. Since when you work with cyclists and runners, you are training them and coaching them. And I think he's given a great example of what keeps him moving too. Mike, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to the podcast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and uh, I will uh, welcome it again. So. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.